0: Hey, y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today, which means that you'll hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and it's September 13th. On this day in 1848, Phineas Gage was struck through the skull with a tamping iron. Gage was the foreman of a railroad crew, and they were clearing the way for a railroad by blasting holes in rock through the side of a hill. There's a several-step process. Step one, you made a hole. Step two was to put gunpowder into the bottom of the hole. Step three was that the foreman would put a fuse into the hole. Step four was that the hole would be filled in with soil, and the foreman would tamp that down with his tamping iron. Step five was to light the fuse. Another crew, once the explosion happened, would clear away the rubble while the first crew went on to dig the next hole. Gage had done this over and over and over, but on September 13th of 1848, while working outside Cavendish, Vermont, something went wrong. He lowered his tamping rod, which was made out of iron, to tamp down the soil, but there wasn't any soil there yet. So the iron struck rock and it made it spark. And when the gunpowder exploded, it drove the tamping iron up under his cheekbone through the frontal lobe of his brain and all the way out of his skull. It landed several yards away. It was amazing that he survived this at all, It was also amazing that he survived the recovery. The germ theory of disease didn't really exist yet. Nobody had a sense of how to clean a dirty wound like this and how to keep it from getting infected. He also lost a lot of blood. He sustained a number of burns. And the tamping iron, when it flew through his head, took a chunk of his brain with it. He might not have even lost consciousness, though. In the words of the local paper, quote, the most singular circumstance connected with this melancholy affair is that he was alive at two o'clock this afternoon and in full possession of his reason and free from pain. The medical treatment that Gage got after this injury was really based on the idea of the four humors and how in the body there were four humors that needed to be kept in balance. His doctor thought that the blood loss helped him out in this whole regard. Ultimately, he did recover, although he lost the eye that had been damaged when the tamping iron flew behind it through his skull. He did have some notable changes in his behavior, though. He had been described before the accident as smart and competent and reliable, but then after the accident, he was described as fitful and irreverent, Profane, impatient, obstinate, capricious, and vacillating. His doctor, whose account may be a little biased because he was trying to get attention in a medical journal, described Gage as kind of like a child. His friends and family just said he was no longer Gage. Although sometimes he's described as never being able to hold down a steady job after this, that is not true. He did have steady work for much of the rest of his life, as as long as his health allowed him to do it. He definitely, though, had different behavior from before. He died in May of 1860, so many years after this accident happened, and he was buried on the 23rd of May that year. Today, Phineas Gage is famous in the world of neuropsychology. He became a textbook example of how different parts of the brain have different functions and how a brain injury can affect a person's behavior. He didn't, though, revolutionize the entire state of medicine. Sometimes you'll read articles that make it sound as though the reason we have lobotomies is because of Phineas Gage. And that's more like people in the present retroactively assigning Phineas Gage to the phenomenon of lobotomies when they weren't directly connected in that way. You can learn more about all of this in the September 11th, 2013 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class, and you can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks also to Tari Harrison for her audio editing work on all of these episodes. Tune in tomorrow for an event that led the U.S. Secret Service to take on a whole new set of duties beyond chasing down counterfeiters.
0: Just a quick content warning before we get started today. Today's episode includes mention of sexual violence, so if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, please skip this episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was September 13, 1922. According to eyewitness accounts, the Great Fire of Smyrna began in Smyrna in Asia Minor, a port city now known as Izmir in Turkey. The fire lasted for about nine days and caused thousands of deaths, though the exact number of deaths and refugees is unknown. It's also unclear who started the fire, among other conflicting facts surrounding the incident. Greek sources claim Turkish soldiers lit Greek and Armenian homes on fire, while Turkish sources blame Greeks and Armenians for burning the city. The catastrophe occurred during the Greco-Turkish War of 1919 to 1922. Smyrna was an important commercial port. Along with its status as a place of significant international economic exchange, it was also a multicultural society. There were Greeks, Turks, Armenians, Jewish people, Europeans, and Levantines. There were thousands of Muslims and Christians in the city, though most of the Greeks and Armenians were Christian. The Turks called Smyrna the city of infidels since there were so many Greek and non-Muslim people there. From May of 1919 until 1922, Greek forces controlled the city. The Treaty of Sevres, signed in 1920, gave administrative control of Smyrna to Greece, but provided that Smyrna remain under Turkish sovereignty. After five years, Smyrna would decide whether it wished to join Greece or stay with the Ottoman Empire. But Turkish nationalist leader Mustafa Kemal demanded that the Turks take back the land held by the Ottoman Empire that was given to Greece. The Greek occupation of Smyrna ended on September 9, 1922, after Greek forces were pushed out of Smyrna and the Turkish army of Mustafa Kemal captured the city. Just four days later, the Great Fire of Smyrna started. There are many conflicting eyewitness accounts of how the fire started. Many witnesses said that Turks used cans of fuel to light structures in the Greek and Armenian quarters on fire. Reports stated that Turkish troops set fire to Greek, Armenian, and European quarters of the city, while no damage was done to Turkish neighborhoods. As Smyrna burned, refugees made their way toward the key and allied ships. Tens of thousands of people gathered on the waterfront to escape the blaze but Allied naval ships had received orders not to intervene, as they were afraid they'd provoke an incident with the Turks. The Turks robbed, assaulted, and killed people, and raped and abducted women and children. A New York Times article from September 20, 1922, mentioned the conditions that refugees faced, including lack of food and clothing, cold nights, and unsanitary conditions. The article said that, quote, Fire has accomplished for the Turks what the sword failed to do. Asia Minor, the cradle of Christianity, will soon be depopulated of Christians. Many of those in Smyrna who were not snatched from death by Americans and other rescuers are disappearing into the hills, some voluntarily, many by force. Others are dying of exhaustion, fright, or exposure on the shattered stone waterfront of the benighted city. International news reports, too, were biased. By September 16th, the fire had subsided, but violence continued against Greek and Armenian refugees. Mustafa Kemal declared that Greek and Armenian men between ages 18 and 45 would be considered prisoners of war, and many of them died or were executed. The first Greek ships sent to rescue refugees entered the harbor on September 24th, the Turkish and Jewish quarters of the city survived through the blaze, while the Greek, Armenian, and Levantine quarters were destroyed. Though thousands of refugees made it out of Smyrna, the port was destroyed. Some historians have said that evidence points to the Turks starting the fire to get the Greeks to leave the city, while others suggested the Greeks and Armenians started the fire to damage the Turks' reputation. The conflict caused a huge refugee crisis. The Treaty of Lausanne, signed in 1923, replaced the Treaty of Sevres. Greeks living in Asia Minor or Eastern Thrace were required to return to the Greek homeland, and Turkish nationals in Greek territory were compelled to return to Turkish homeland. Modern Turkey became a recognized sovereign nation and replaced the Ottoman Empire. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCPodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back tomorrow for more delicious morsels of history.